This feature has been brought to you by Slot Foundation, which needs your support to continue projects like these. Information on this recording and access to other recordings is available online at slot.org. Maurice Bonchot's Political Writings, 1953 to 1993, is an augmented translation of a book that first appeared in France in 2003, shortly after Bonchot's death. Its topics range from the French-Algerian War and the mass movements of May 1968 to post-war debates about the Shoah and beyond. A large number of the tracts, essays, letters, and fragments it contains were written anonymously and signed collectively, often in response to events that urgently called for one. Their republication in French was made possible by the issues of the journal Ligne, devoted to Blanchot, Dionis Mascolo, and Antelme. The dates of this collection are somewhat arbitrary, given that Blanchot's political writings range from 1931 to 2002, if we consider the many manifestos to which he continued to lend his signature until his death. There are many reasons why this book should not exist in its current form or as a book at all. One could argue that since many of these texts were originally written anonymously or collectively or both, to assemble and publish them under Blanchot's name erroneously attributes them to a singular authority. Moreover, the now familiar trajectory of Blanchot from a nationalism of the right to an internationalism of the left could only be reconstructed if the pre-World War II journalism were made available. While this would undoubtedly be a significant project, the difficulties of selecting representative texts from a markedly distinct historical context and presenting them as an appendix to this volume would have been uh, extremely difficult, uh, if not of an insurmountable difficulty, especially since no such edition exists even in French. Um, that said, thanks to significant efforts in the scholarship from uh, Bidon and Leslie Hill, for instance, we now have a clearer picture of the complex place where Blanchot began his political journalism. The milieu of Catholic nonconformism, notably around the young dissidents of the Action Francaise, led by Thierry Monnier, was doubled by a close connection to Jewish nationalist groups around Paul Lévy and associated weeklies. As a young journalist, Blanchot's position was one of contestation, anti-capitalist, anti-parliamentarian, anti-communist, anti-German, anti-Hitler. As early as 1933, he wrote articles denouncing the establishment of labor camps and the barbarous persecution of the Jews. Three major independent concerns have been identified in Blanchot's interwar journalism, in addition to the underlying desire for a national spiritual revolution that would countervail what he then perceived of as the dual pitfalls of social democracy and communism. The first is the necessity of opposing Hitler. Second, Blanchot's growing distress at the undermining of national sovereignty by French foreign policy starting in 1924. And finally, his opposition to the abstract and juridical conception of politics that allowed Aristide Briand and other leaders of the Third Republic to identify with the League of Nations in the first place, weakening the forceful foundation of law that Blanchot considered necessary. And yet, this triad of concerns does not in the least amount to a political program. As Leslie Hill has argued, the only programmatic element here is the desire to depose an incompetent government. Blanchot's last distinctly political text of the pre-war period was published in December 1937 and ended with an open call for dissidents. 
in a letter he wrote to Nado, Mohis Nado, in 1977, he says this about his right-wing journalism. I shall not defend the text I saw fit to publish at that time. There can be no doubt that I have changed. As far as I can tell, I changed under the influence of writing. At the time, I was writing Thomas L'Obscure and Amin Adab, and also through my knowledge of events. At the time, I was working for a paper whose proprietor, Paul Levy, was a Jew, and we were visited by many German-Jewish emigres. This change through writing was followed by almost two decades, during which Bonchot refrained from publishing and political issues, continuing to establish himself as a prose writer and a literary critic. He must have remained an acute observer of political changes, for he emerged from his literary reserve and reappropriated a political voice to expose the increasingly shaky foundations of the Fourth Republic, besieged with instability in Indochina and Algeria. This contestation from the margins of literature signaled a growing refusal to accept the existing state of affairs, as well as a desire to find new forms of fragmentary and collective writing in order to express this refusal. A search for new kinds of political intervention is the absent center of this collection. According to Bonchot's often quoted testimony to Nadeau, the turn from the far right to the far left and beyond occurred through the writing of his novels and récits while theorizing a separate literary space. But such an attempt to account for a political term in terms of a turn to literature uh, remains insignificant, insufficient. In order to explain the shift, one would have to understand what Blanchot means by literature, how writing invariably involves the loss of the power to say I and moves the writing self outside of the domains that structure constitute an individual, an individual selfhood. Lest we forget, during these years of writing, the disaster of the Second World War and the Shoah showed that humanity is capable of annihilating itself. Much later, Blanchot wrote, no matter when it may be written, every story will henceforth be before Auschwitz. Placing literature before Auschwitz also meant placing it at the cusp of a disaster, watching over a forever imminent destruction that politics failed to avoid. If one were obliged to find a continuity despite the immeasurable gulf separating Blanchot's pre- and post-war politics, one might point to the persistent absence of a program in favor of elevating refusal to the quintessential political gesture. However tempting, such a continuous view is simplistic, since Blanchot in the 30s was close to volatile groups with distinct political agendas. After the war, he insisted that he was not a political writer, distancing himself from the dominant mode of Sartrean engagement and emphasizing instead that it was in writing that he came to politics and the political. Each stance he took was in turn complicated by the conviction that political thought remains forever to be discovered. Blanchot's earlier writings remind us how deceptively facile it is to refuse established forms of authority. Only after the war was he able to reformulate his task as one of learning not only how to refuse, but how to sustain the power of refusal through rigor of thought and modesty of expression. The occasion for refusal were many. Following the sections of this book, they can be divided into roughly three periods. The first spans the decade from 1953 to 1963, when Blanchot was active in opposing the Gaulist coup d'etat that brought the embattled general back to power in 1958. He did so by supporting the Janson Network and the Algerian Liberation Movement, declaring the right to insubordination in the war in the Manifesto of the 121. 
This period laid the groundwork for the Revue Internationale, a failed project for a fragmentary experimental journal, unlike Les Temps Modernes, which Blanchot requested Sartre abolish in the only unanswered letter that he ever wrote to him. The second edition of political writing, the second section of political writings focuses on 1968, the year he participated in the Student Writer Action Committee and anonymously wrote uh, most of the first issue of the review Comité, including what Derrida later considered some of the finest political tracts ever written. The third period stretches from 1970 to 1993 and includes Blanchot's reactions to controversy over Heidegger's political commitments, Antoine's testimony of his experience in Buchenwald, Gandersheim, and Dachau, and his lifelong friend Levinas's elevation of ethics to a first philosophy. Somewhat surprisingly for those who may have the image of Blanchot as a writer devoted to literature and its own silence, he also wrote texts on Nelson Mandela and the apartheid, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Political writings begins with a 1953 review Blanchot wrote of Dionis Mascolo's communism, revolution, and communication. Having declared openness to the other to be an essential mode of political decision and affirmation, Blanchot went further than Mascolo in an avowedly Nietzschean desire to transmute all values, moving towards an affirmation that is entirely other. This withdrawal from all pre-established values drew Blanchot closer to Mascolo and the group that burgeoned around the Rue Saint-Benoît, including Marguerite Duras, Robert Antel, Edgar Morin, Maurice Nadeau, and others. Upon reading the first issue of Le 14 Juillet, a review, Mascolo and Jean Schuster started to contest the Gaullist coup d'état of May 13, 1958. Blanchot wrote to them declaring, I would like you to know that I agree with you. I refuse the past and accept nothing of the present. Le 14 Juillet was structured around the notion of a refusal, a collective no addressed to the military's illegitimate elevation of de Gaulle into the role of head of state. It would be hard to overstate how difficult such refusal was in 1958. Despite signs of latent resistance to French colonialism, such protests had little place in the triumphal post-war discourse of, of France. Uh, the lack of institutional backing, as well as the complexity of the situation, provided the occasion for Blanchot to articulate his own conception of the political act, which must be based on a refusal of both opportunism and compromise, a refusal, in short, of the idea that politics is the adaptation to a difficult reality or the art of pragmatism. Armed with a heightened consciousness of the difficulty of finding the words to judge in a case where, where what is perceived as good and evil become intertwined, in this case, French national security and stability and a government propped up by the army drafting its youth into an unjust colonialist war where torture was increasingly becoming acceptable, Blanchot argued that it's precisely in such areas that an act of judgment becomes necessary. The writer becomes an intellectual, momentarily assuming the guise and responsibility in order to express political judgment. At a time when most are unable to exercise this faculty on their own or are kept from being heard. There is a noteworthy difference for Blanchot between judgment and analysis. He's not interested in analyzing current events. Nowhere is this clearer than in a text entitled The Essential Perversion that refuses to analyze the events that brought de Gaulle to power. Instead, it seeks to intensify the debate about de Gaulle's self-anointed providential role in French politics. 
Blanchot insists on the singular perversion of de Gaulle's character, which incarnates sovereignty in a manner that transcends the political, instead instantiating the omnipotence of salvation. This attribution of theological powers implies, in turn, de Gaulle's total lack of efficacy as an agent of government. For Blanchot, one should read de Gaulle's name as a code word for a colonialist movement, a nationalist drive, technocratic force, and the transformation of the army into a police force, movements that were being reproduced globally from the communist to the United States. Hence, the difficulty of naming the precise nature of the political conflict in Algeria or the construction of the Berlin Wall or the struggles of students and workers in 68, since each one of these singular situations arose when traditional political categories and representations were overturned. To name the nature of political conflict is already to make a political judgment. The dual impetus of Blanchot's post-war political writings remained to name the possible and respond to the impossible, as he put it in one of his letters, his last letters to Georges Bataille. The unprecedented experience of drafting the Manifesto of the 121, which called for the declaration of the right to insubordination in the Algerian war, left Blanchot with the conviction that the collective, anonymous, and fragmentary writing was best suited to this double demand. He tried to institutionalize the experience in the utopian Revue Internationale, a dream organ of total critique, but failed, failing utopically. He found some solace in the events of May 68, when the refusal he had sought to express for so long took to the streets with arresting tracks, posters, and bulletins, fighting what he saw as de Gaulle's regime of political death. The mass movements, which claimed to conjoin the demands of the workers and students, citizens and immigrants, colonizer and colonized, expressed a form of speech capable of laying open another future. Such multiple speech was the true side of the events of May, which he dubbed a revolution without project. Instead, what mattered to Blanchot was allowing the possibility of being together to re-emerge, a possibility that gave back to all the right to equality in fraternity through freedom of speech that elated everyone. There are strong reasons to claim that Blanchot lacks a fully articulated political theory. This absence should not be conceived of as a lack, but as an alternative to theory. The interest of these writings, then, is never the particular set of theoretical stances Blanchot adopts with respect to specific political problems, from colonialism to capitalist mode of production and its cultural effects, but rather the way in such judgments are mirrored by a constant reflection on the gesture of writing as a highly distinctive and mediate form of political intervention. The decision of refusal, which belongs above all to those who cannot speak, can be followed like Ariadne's thread throughout the labyrinth of the post-war period. Whether one can extrapolate a politics from these collective instances of refusal, and whether such a politics would better be named a theory or a gesture, are a questions I hope we might discuss together. Thank you. Right positioning here. I'm, I'm very glad to have read these documents all together in one volume with Zucker Paul's excellent notes and introduction because it's been making me think again better about something I'd just about given up on, relations between literature and politics in Blanchot's work and the significance of his left-wing political writing. What I'd come to doubt 
in a mildly disgruntled way, I admit, is that Blanchot's literary writing leads to his political interventions or to anything political at all, or that his conception of literature has political implications which his overtly political opinions and activities bear out. When I thought of all the things that could have led someone, anyone, to oppose France's Nazi occupiers after 1940 or de Gaulle's coup d'etat in 58, I confess I couldn't really take seriously Blanchot's suggestion that in his case it was l'écriture. His politics had changed, he said laconically in 1977, under the influence of writing. If there was a relation between literature and politics in his life and work, I didn't think it could be grasped in terms of implications or logical consistency or influence. And I couldn't really think of any other possible modes of relatedness. Moreover, when I was content simply to acknowledge that Blanchot had political convictions with which I happened to agree and that he acted on them from the early 50s on, I couldn't be persuaded that they demanded special attention. Take the view that May 68 was an explosive affirmation of new plural relations that can best be lived momentarily, that this unforeseen, unprogrammed uprising pointed toward a justice beyond institutions, though neither divine nor ideal. If Blanchot is something unforgettable, if his books are something a person such as me just can't get over, it's not on account of accurate perceptions and good ideas like that, I thought. Moreover, to the very extent I had it in me to see in his affirmation of sheer rupture with programs, platforms, and power relations something way more than a good idea, or anyway something radically other than that, I couldn't really believe it had anything in it for us during our wars in Central America, Iraq, Afghanistan, when our country took up torture, or now as my own so-called public university in California shuts out more and more students, impoverishes its non-academic employees, and so on. I don't think I'm numb at all or inert to the force of Blanchot's political writing when he breaks with all positions of the kind you must and can take, stick to, and defend, when he refuses power, all the institutions and mechanisms through which what can be done is and what can happen does, when he signals a different power without power, as he puts it. That's by no means passive in any ordinary sense, for it refuses delays, detours, calculations. It's impatient, won't wait, and proves as insouciant about resolving any problem as it is startling and incisive. I am not numb to this radical break, but it is not a value of any kind, as far as I can see. It's no form of wisdom. I don't mean it's unwise or bad advice. It just has nothing to do with anything you could accept, adopt, adapt, promote. I might borrow an adjective Blanchot uses in other contexts. It's unbelievable. When he writes that there is nothing more illegitimate than political commentary expressed by someone who believes he has something to say and knows he has the desire to say it, or that the only political impact that matters comes of utter indifference to all impact, effectiveness, results. It doesn't matter whether you agree or not. I do, but it's immaterial. In his introduction, Zucker Paul asks explicitly whether there is a politics in the writing he's collected and translated, and he answers that he doubts it, or at least he doubts one can extrapolate a political theory from these texts. 
Not that he considers Blanchot to have fallen short on this account. As he said just now, the absence of a theory is an alternative to theory. Blanchot offers no theory but a gesture of refusal. He refuses every kind of authority and the aura of legitimacy that authorities enjoy. He refuses culture and its riches and the temptation to join the edifying task of enriching culture ever more. He refuses fields of expertise and the discourse of experts, preferring collective anonymous judgments, fragmentary discussions that respond to what's unexpected, unforeseeable in any event, unabsorbable by the structures already in place. Sakur Paul emphasizes these refusals and all their incisiveness with spirit and without attributing any particular wisdom to them. They represent no values. Blanchot's refusal, Zacher writes, is above all a refusal of enlightening stories and political lessons. It's in large part Zacher's saying this in so many words and also by implication in his whole introduction that makes the Blanchot text collected in this volume challenging, challenging and exciting again to me. We can't profit from them. They don't offer anything to count on or to base any political opinion or ethical position on. They don't explain or justify anything or anyone, especially not Blanchot. I think, sort of paradoxically, that by conveying this, Zakhar Paul does Blanchot's left-wing political writings justice. He relieves them of importance, if I may say so, and all the while, via his notes as well as his introduction, reminds us of the specific conditions in which each gesture was launched, the different circumstances surrounding each intervention. He informs us about the occasions Blanchot rose to when momentarily his weird ideas had a chance to be real interventions. So we get a sense of the fragment, the tract, the gesture, the refusal as singular each time, strategic and creative. There's one more aspect of this book that I'm especially glad of. It's the way Zacher's assembling of the text and his introduction and notes bring out the double impotence behind Blanchot's writing, the two forms of responsibility colliding with each other all the time, irreconcilable but indispensable to each other. For my own part, I've always thought this dissonant double demand can't be underscored too much, and it comes through very strongly in Zacher's book. That there's political responsibility that accepts Marxism as nature, Blanchot writes, and the dialectic as the method of truth, and then also literary responsibility, which, he says, escapes the dialectic and does not belong to it, but represents a power of a particular sort that does not have to do with possibility. This means that everything takes place as if the world always had to be thought of, spoken, twice. First, from the perspective of unity and in relation to the coming of the whole, Blanchot says, and a second time in the affirmation of difference and the demand for discontinuity. We have two lives, he writes, two lives that we must try to live together, even though they are irreconcilable. In this volume, we meet up with, the, with Blanchot's refusal of political work, of dialogues, compromises, delays, calculations. And, right on a nearby page, we follow his laborious, carefully worded letters to Uwe Johnson on the subject of the Revue Internationale, qualifying his own perspective with a view toward gradually reducing differences and achieving practical agreements, workable forms of unity. 
Zucker's compilation makes me more aware than ever of the double requirement, the two lives to live at once, and also of how both politics and literature are other and more than themselves. Of course, there's no circumscribing sheer difference, no enclosing the impossible within boundaries you'd imagine to be its own proper ones, on the other side of which would lie politics, the perspective of the whole and the unity to come. But there's also no holding humans inside any whole or unity, even, Blanchot writes, when nothing counts among them except the unity to come, justice for all. The whole would not even be an aim if right at the heart of it, it weren't interrupted. But interruption would never be the strange, impossible upheaval it is were it just simply the opposite of the whole. Perhaps this inconsistency on both sides makes politics and literature somehow closer to each other than either one is to itself. I don't mean that they turn out to be complementary, but the writings collected in this book suggest that what drives the two responsibilities, the two lives apart and makes them irreconcilable is nothing so much as their inseparability. Is this being heard? Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Jean-Michel, for inviting me. Um, I'm no expert on Blanchot. I'm just a generalist. I have uh, uh, sponsored and brought into English a number of books by Blanchot. And I have to confess that I didn't realize um, until Friday when I printed out what was on the website that I was going to be here rather than behind the books that are for sale at a Nice 30% discount, $19.50, $19 if it's cash. Um, and so I figure what I have to do in these uh, few minutes here is to try to convince you to buy them so I don't have to lug them back up to Westchester with me. Um, and I thought, since I am just a generalist, I would ask the question of why are these essays important for me? And I thought I would, um, in... Uh, that also was the question, how can I, as a person for whom thinking and writing are central, I mean, I'd like to aspire to the term intellectual, um, live in a politically responsible way? Um, and I figured I would suspend this between two political points. And since we are in Philadelphia, and I graduated from Swarthmore in 1972, I would uh, put two of them here. Um, one in 1970, when I was a sophomore. Um, that's the year of the Kent State uh, killings and afterwards the attempt in the United States at a general student strike. Of course, there had been mass meetings in Swarthmore. It was Swarthmore. We decided we were going to revise the educational system and everybody had mass meetings until we'd all told each other what our teachers had told us and then went back to class. Now, that's oversimplified. Um, the um, phenomenon of mass protests... Um, the very interesting spectrum in the 70s from everybody from solidly bourgeois people to radical fringe. Um, all, all this was going on. I was just a dumb kid from the um, from, However, I happened to be a dumb kid from the Pacific Northwest, which was about as close to grassroots democracy as this country's ever come. So um, in my uh, um, political science test, I think, that year, um, I was had to take social science and I took political science. I, I think I said something about this period as a kind of, of testing of the promises that I had thought this country was holding out for, for um, participation in government and are all discovering that they were false. 
Um, I also want to mention something that I believe happened the next year in 1971, although it might have been 1972. I don't know if, if there's anyone here who knows more about this than me. I would love to hear about it afterwards. This was a, I think, really quite very remarkably in comparison, actually, to all of that activity, um, effective political action. Um, somebody, and I don't know who, and I don't know if they ever found out who, burglarized the um, FBI office in media, Pennsylvania, and um, in the months afterwards released the documents there to um, newspapers and individuals in Philadelphia. Um, of course, the Swarthmore Papers received uh, the secret documents since media was the FBI office responsible for Swarthmore during 1970 and all that. So we saw what had been put in to the, the government about, uh, well, what the phone operators said about assistant professors in philosophy and whatnot. I think what got into the national media was the statement that at some point in these documents it said that we want to give the impression that there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox, which was not the impression I grew up with in the Pacific Northwest. I, I think this had something to do with the Freedom of Int Information Act. But... Um, I didn't even know then, and this shows what a dumb kid I was, but also that the national media was, were all full of um, intricate accounts of battles with places of strange names. So I, even if I wanted to try to read a newspaper, I always felt I was coming in the middle of something in Vietnam that I didn't quite know was happening. I had no idea that May 68 had happened. Um, and, of course, even less idea that someone named Bar um, Maurice Blanchot had amazingly in 68, in the midst of that, um, articulated so well what I felt that I was stumbling to learn at that time, which is that what we were trying to do at that time, and I wasn't terribly political, I was an observer because I never trusted Marxism, um, observing an attempt to, and I'm quoting him, escape an alienated order, but one that is so powerfully structured and integrated that simple contestation is always at risk of being placed in its service. Now let me move to um, the last couple of weeks in my political positioning. I actually have been at four um, academic conferences in the last five weeks. One of these, a wonderful conference in Ithaca entitled Commonalities, uh, which was bringing together Italian, contemporary Italian philosophers with political leanings. And there, of course, um, because Marxism never took over in Italy, uh, if they had, had they been in e Eastern Europe, they would have put it behind them. Um, they're still much influenced by this, or many of them, by the, the neo-Marxist legacy. And uh, in at a very brilliant, engaged conference for two days, trying to set out um, what I want to... Forgive me, I, it's a bad summary. You know, contemporary forms of hopelessness. I mean, what, is, what, what are the current forms of capital, of, of capital, neoliberal capital and the conditions of globalization? Are there any modes of ways in which we could think of action against these? Um, the other one I wanted to mention happened last weekend at Bard. It was entitled Human Being in an Inhuman Age. I mean, most of the people there were political theorists who are people I think are really cool and whose work I like, but also invited was a certain person named Ray Kurzweil, whom I'd never heard of, um, he's an inventor who's invented various recognition software and whatnot and is linked to a movement that includes a certain e education of higher learning called Singularity University in a part of the country I once lived in. Um, and 
Um, his two-hour presentation was a particularly disturbing blend of techno-utopianism, neoliberal capital, and a sense of and hope for a sense of uh, an imminent change in times, which was how we felt in 70 here, and uh, this um, messianism that's part of the Western tradition threads its way throughout Blanchot too, minus the techno-utopianism. Now, what was going on there was so typical of neoliberal capitalism here in that there was a rhetoric of inevitability and you can't do anything about it, we were told by his factotum from um, um, Singularity University and a kind of triumphalism of this, uh, you know, Technical, ex, you know, exponential technological explosion, and I felt really bummed out, as I don't usually do at these conferences. And every morning since, I've been waking up and finding that I'm kind of ticking through. How do I feel about this kind of rhetoric? How do I feel when I sit next to someone on a plane and look over and see the kind of language of neoliberal capitalism? Um, which I find rather frightening. You know, I see it in the subways, I see it, I can't remember where I was flying, I think out of Charlotte last year, and was sitting next to someone, I'm a publisher, and I was reading over his shoulder, and I think, oh, wow, you know, he's about to say, uh, let's get rid of of warehousing. Let's just do it all online. I can see where those figures are going. He happened to be running a supermarket chain in Greece. Now, in fact, the... uh, Techno-utopians were saying, well, there will be a time of no scarcity. We'll just, you know, print up online food and things like that, and people won't go hungry. So what in this, as I wake up this morning and think about what on earth am I going to say here, am I, at these moments in my life, going to take from Blanchot? Um, Well, in response to Zakir's last question about a gesture and what was the... A gesture or theory. a gesture or theory. Um, I didn't do this in Philadelphia, but I left Swarthmore really wanting to learn something more about my body. And so when I went to Yale Graduate School in English, what I really, really wanted to do was Taiji. And so I have uh, spent some time doing that in the years since. And so um, what I think of myself politically trying to do and have tried to enact for the decades I've been an editor is a stance. Um, and a gesture comes out of a groundedness. Um, and there are three terms, as I was refreshing my memory of this volume before I came, to, I came to be part of this panel that I wanted to put out for you. One has been important in both of the previous talks, and that is refusal. Um, that is, if you think about the Kurzweils of this world and neoliberalism, a beautiful concept. Um, and I wanted to read you a, I'll read a few things to try to get you to buy the book. Um, a statement of this from one of his, I think, 1950s or earlier essays. I didn't think to note the dates of what I'm going to read, called Refusal. When we refuse, we refuse with a movement free from contempt and exaltation. No triumphalism, I, I insert that. One that is as far as possible anonymous, for the power of refusal is accomplished neither by us nor in our name, but from a very poor beginning that belongs, first of all, to those who cannot speak. This will mean that there's an ellipsis. I think that refusal is never easy, that we must learn how to refuse and to maintain intact this power of refusal by the rigor of thinking and modesty of expression that each one of our affirmations must evidence from now on. Um, One of the speakers at the Italy conference, Bifo, I can't remember what his name 
I'll remember in a second, I'm blanking on his name, talked about what we need now in this proliferation of information is immediacy. That is to say, withdrawal from all these things. This stance of refusal, this principled refusal, I actually was saying to someone over dinner on Saturday, well, he said, well, how can you stop the inevitability of techno thing? I said, well, say no. Don't upgrade. Don't buy the next gadget. Um, but the possibility, and what, what would refusal think mean, interests me a lot. I love also this, belongs first of all to those who cannot speak. At the moment when we cannot speak, when all our language is taken away by this other discourse, what can we do? We can refuse, but that's not just... Um, a pushing away. Um, number two of these terms is responsibility. Um, I like this term better than complicity or action, both of which I've heard in, in modes of political discourse, because I think each of these terms, uh, complicity and action, has a kind of hopelessness in its own way, and I can tell you why I think that if you want afterwards. Um, but what I see in Blanchot's writing in this book and in, in those writings around Blanchot, Levinas, his other things, what do we have responsibility to and through what relation? And that's what we really didn't know in 1970 and hadn't thought at all. Um, and there was lots of inchoate um, misunderstanding there. Um, and I'm, toward that, I'd like to read a quote um, from another piece in here on refusal, this is from the 1970s part, Refusing the Established Order, in which he's, uh, um, he doesn't use the word uh, of responsibility, he doesn't use the word responsibility, but I find it a very beautiful passage. It's referring to um, the Passover ceremony, in which I've actually never um, partaken because I'm not Jewish. If in the ceremony of Passover, it is traditional to save a cup of wine for the one who will precede and announce the messianic coming, coming of the just world, it is understandable that the vocation of the writer is not to consider himself a prophet or a messiah, but to save the place of the one who will come. To save that moment of hope, I stick in, ellipsis. Um, and also to maintain the immemorial memory that reminds us that we were slaves that even liberated, we remain and will remain slaves as long as others remain so, that there is thus no freedom, to put it too simply, except for others and through others. And actually, in my years between 1970 and the last couple of weeks, um, in the years of neo-capitalism, that identification with the slaves is perhaps what I learned. Um, and then the third term is one that has been in play with Zakir and um, Anne as well, which is writing. Um, what writing means, writing is a very powerful term for Blanchot. I, I'm not a writer, I'm an editor. I work with writing. Whenever I try to do any writing myself, I always feel it heads in a Blanchotian direction because it always heads and turns inward and away from any subject position I could have and back on and undermining it. You know, a following that leads outside and beyond oneself. Um, I haven't read enough of him. I'm not an expert in his work to know where that would go into the silences and the bordering of silences that is where I think writing can most powerfully take place. But uh, I will conclude by reading from the very last page of this book, um, actually the last page of the text, something on that, which uh, I'll just read it. Blanchot is so amazing. To write is to hold oneself through passivity beyond death, 
a death that fleetingly establishes a search for the other, a relation without relation to others. And this is what I could pull out of this book. I've read it a couple times, but I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to say something in half an hour sitting in Starbucks at the Marriott. Um, You can pull a lot more out of it uh, if you want to buy it and read it. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Helen. I'll just say a few things. First, perhaps that this is an important book to have in English. It was an important book to have in French because for me it changed a little bit what I knew of Blanchot. And I wouldn't say that this is the key to Blanchot since his uh, various texts uh, amount to a lot without creating anything like a system. But there is a relentless interrogation and Helen and we you all said it well about writing and what it can do and I think that for me this book is the uh, is as important as the publication of the uh, political writings of Jean Genet uh, L'Ennemi Déclaré The Declared Enemy of course Blanchot and Genet would agree on certain things and disagree on many things, like Israel and the Palestinians. But one link for me would be Derrida, who managed to be a close friend of both Blanchot and Genet. And I was thinking of this recently, reading for uh, a press, another press that yells at, uh, that uh, <laughs> I hope is going to publish a f- an English translation of Benoit Peters' biography of Derrida, in which Peters mentions, and I wasn't sure about this, at least this is what he says, that Blanchot invented the best of the May 68 slogans, and I'll say it in French, first, soyez réaliste, demandez l'impossible, be realistic, ask for the impossible. Um, which, if it is not perhaps absolutely 100% true, I don't know whether you, you believe it is, it is true. There are many, many stories about this. It's so much like what Blanchot would have indeed suggested during those nights of the occupations of the Sorbonne and the theaters of the Latin Quarter. And so what one can see, and this is why you have a, a few of those uh, uh, May 68 slogans uh, it's absolutely fascinating to see this writer who was then 61 become you might say a teenager again and uh, hop from barricade to barricade and write graffitis and exult as he had never done in his entire life. I want to insist on this little vignette because this is what one can see with all the quasi-anonymous tracts that Blanchot wrote in all those meetings, how important that moment was. And I'd like to uh, contrast this with what is perhaps a received opinion facing Blanchot in the U.S. And here I'll quote from a book I I like, uh, but that takes Blanchot as a symptom, I mean Frederick Jameson's A Singular Modernity from 2002, 
that has a long discussion of Blanchot in a chapter on modernism as ideology. For Jameson, Blanchot is the best representative of what he calls the ideology of modernism, the ideology of aesthetic autonomy. It is true that Jameson knows that Blanchot has had many moments, I quote this. Blanchot can be and has been seen as a novelist who gradually became a critic and a literary theorist, either because of the formal exhaustion of his initial Kafkaesque forms or, what amounts perhaps to the same thing, because of the gradual intensification of his consciousness of the pure act of writing as such. He can be seen, which is also true, as a right-wing nationalist and ideologist in the 1930s, whose anti-German and anti-Hitlerian nationalism leads him to political disillusionment and depolitization early enough in the game for honor to be saved, and who rediscovers the pure form of the collective political gesture in the post-war movement of the protest against the Algerian war and in the great convulsion of May 68 that eventually followed, he can finally be seen as a quintessential literary theorist or ideologist of a post-structuralist textuality, the productivity of his eclectic groundwork acknowledged from their very different perspectives by Foucault and Derrida alike. But having said this, Jameson, and I will skip the long demonstration, ends up by saying that fundamentally for him, Blanchot is a formalist and what he sees as the interaction between writing and politics is in the end a sort of aesthetization of the movement. I think it is important to read this book to realize that this is not the case, that I think Jameson gets it wrong. And uh, there are many debates in that book and one can see only tips of various icebergs, but a main debate would be a debate with Levinas. Another debate would be a debate with Bataille. And the third one, and I think Zakir mentioned it, is with Sartre. And I'll quote just a passage that I think somehow answers partly to the objections put forward by Jameson. Uh, he mentions uh, that there was this discussion with Sartre about the temps modern and the various publications that Blanchot, the International Review, was hoping to launch that never really worked because of dissensions between uh, the Italians, the Germans, the French, and so on. Uh, but what one can see uh, is that in those discussions, he was in touch with Sartre, and that's what I quote here, from refusing the established order, to limit, this is Blanchot who speaks, to limit myself to the story I know, Sartre himself was very surprised with the most important post-war decision, the one that had the most influence on events before May 68, by which I mean the Declaration of 121 on the right to insubordination in the Algerian war appeared to be the work of writers who could be considered non-committed and who nonetheless could only affirm and not without risk the need to refuse at a time when the government was tending toward 
an abhorrent form of oppression. This is the paradox of those pages somehow, that Blanchot can indeed both be a writer of pure writing, endlessly reiterating this shocking otherness, alterity of writing, and be constantly fully political at the same time. Whereas, uh, and I think this is a point that Blanchot and Foucault both made, and there was this interesting convergence between Foucault and Blanchot, you don't need to have to pretend to be a committed intellectual to be political. And I think this is the main break with a certain French um, uh, moralization of politics that I think Sartre embodied. Uh, in a sense, one can say that Sartre took less risks than Blanchot during the war. Uh, I mean, the Second World War, of course, um, not the Algerian War, uh, because he was, after all, uh, having his place performed when Blanchot was doing resistance uh, underground work, uh, helping Jewish refugees and so on, and France. But, like Beckett, uh, Blanchot never paraded this, and on the contrary, decided to withdraw. And so, this is what one see in those writings, the writings of May 68 being the most systematic, and there is a, another debate here via Bataille with Marx. And you can see clearly that Blanchot is a Marxist up to a certain point, but with strong reservations. And I think for him, 68 was not only May 68, but also August 68, the Russian tanks in Prague as a big blow to what he imagined the movement to be doing at that time. And I'll, I'll conclude with, with this, this moment when, in a sense, Blanchot and Lacan both, I would say, inherited something of the effervescence, this revolutionary lyricism of May 68. Lacan, of course, was slightly more ironical facing the movements, the movement and the students. Blanchot, uh, it's clear, always, and that I think is uh, 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 an organizing obsession, was extremely critical of De Gaulle from the beginning till the end, from uh, the end of the war till the resignation of De Gaulle as a sort of backlash of May 68. Lacan, it seems to me, in that proximity with Blanchot, more or less identified perhaps more with De Gaulle when he decided to disband his school. But both agreed that somehow all this had been a sort of explosion of speech, of politics, and for Blanchot, something that forced writing to consider what it really could do, the performativity, the political performativity of uh, writing. And to conclude, I'll say simply, and I discovered today that there was a book with this title, but it might be interesting to know that Blanchot's uh, latest address near Paris was Place des Pensées. For a long time, I believe that 
it meant the pansies, the flowers, and I imagine a sort of bucolic uh, uh, set of flower beds. But in fact, Place des Pensées, I discovered, and it was Derrida who told me, was not uh, the flower, but Pascal's book, that he lived in a development where all the streets had a provincial, les pensées, and so on. So he lived in the square of the thoughts, where thoughts are being produced, but produced as writing. So having said this, maybe we can open to the public, to those of you who have questions, to, uh, or between ourselves, uh, but also, first of all, maybe to, I see a few among you seem to have um, something to say. Yes? <laughs> um, so it's that kind of rude that's really asking this, this question. Uh, I, I, I'd like to ask you about sort of the, the nature of um, this long-short refusal idea that you've all discussed, um, based on two things. First is my own kind of counterfactual um, desire to sort of see what would happen if the mature long-short could either interface with you know, the contemporary political situation in the U.S., um, or sort of plant him back in the, in the sort of 37 the young moment, where, where in sort of the, you know, what, what have to, would have to refuse multiple positions in order to create a kind of the outside that he's, that he's looking for. That's one part of the question about refusal, sort of how it works for him. The other is actually based on um, uh, uh, his preface to the Rotevon Saad book, um, which seems to have a very specific idea in, in mind. Um, he talks about the work of the critic um, using a Heideggerian um, image of the, of the snowflake falling on the bell. And instead of the Heideggerian image where it sort of gets in the way of the bell, it actually allows the bell to ring. Right? So the silent snowflake actually mediates sound. There's a very specific idea about causality there. Where even the snowflake is itself significant quiet, totally tacit, right? It becomes sort of in some ways the sort of causative, the little thing that allows the, the bell to ring. And I'm just wondering if you could marinate with these <laughs> loose ideas a little bit, but just to hear more about the idea of the no. Well, uh, to pick up on the idea of refusal and, and to connect to, to Saad, I think that's a very uh, important connection, and especially when you oppose Saad to Saint-Just. And this is something that Bonchot has done himself in order to show how Saad goes further than Saint-Just in a Republican tradition. Um, and their refusal is a non-negative modality. It shouldn't be uh, understood as not having a positive element. And, and I think this comes out uh, in a text like the Declaration to the Right to Insubordination, uh, where the language, the title that is chosen by Bonchot, and perhaps this is something, uh, here I'm speculating, but the right touch for the title, um, puts it in lineage with French political thought, going back to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, uh, which includes, interestingly, a right to resistance. And um, Etienne Baribas has recently written on Blanchot in, in, in this vein to show that there is this French tradition uh, that, that 
we forget in, in receiving Vancho as, as a postmodern thinker, but that, 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 that his refusal is, is anchored in this tradition and, and Badiba points out that, for instance, there's a, a forgotten, repressed, often repressed fifth verse of the Internationale, which is uh, when the tyrants um, declare unjust war, the bullets will be for them, the bullets will be for the general. So this refusal, um, and, and, and the, the no, I think the notion of refusal is linked to the notion of in, insubordination, and it's very important to, to realize that insubordination um, is to be conceived of in a, in a classical political theory uh, sense, in the sense that it's the moment that precedes uh, becoming a subject, uh, becoming a political subject, uh, and entering into uh, a state where one is subject to sovereignty, one is subject to law. And the moment of insubordination brings us back through refusal to a moment where uh, the citizen becomes the judge of the state. And, and uh, this sort of excessive gesture is also uh, sad undoing Saint-Just, or going further than Saint-Just. Um, so that's what comes to mind. Uh, I think Saad indeed would be the key thinker for Blanchot uh, and Bataille as well. But there is a certain, I would distance maybe, taken uh, in the 50s and 60s from the earlier endorsement uh, of the 40s, in which we see, I think, Blanchot very, very close to Bataille and close to a Bataillon Saad of pure excess and transgression, the, the, the Saad that Bataille in the 30s would see as you know, a sort of pre-Marxist Saad um, as excess, I, I'd say, excess and refusal are, are combined. But it's, uh, and, and the energy of the revolutionary movement that Saad would see in the... 1789 moment, not in the uh, 1793 terror. Uh, it's the Hegelian meditation on what happened between those two moments of the French Revolution, the moment of the joyful uh, explosion and the moment of terror, and Blanchot very, very early, via Hegel, Bataille, and Saad would meditate on, on that. And he saw, I think, De Gaulle as somebody who had clamped down on French society and had, in a way, cornered everything and in a way, prevented those energies from releasing themselves. Um, your, your, the thing that came to my mind from your questions was a, a, one of the pieces in the collection uh, written, I think, sort of in the aftermath of 68, and uh, it's about what, what's an exemplary act. Um, what, and uh, it, it seems as if Losch was writing this thing at a moment when there have been exemplary acts, acts that are revolutionary. But it now is a different moment, and it's, he, he's uncertain what one would be now, what one would be in this particular uh, moment or uh, conjunction of circumstances. And he, 
it, it seems that, I mean, that's one of the things that sort of came through to me more in reading through this book than I ever had before in my reading of Blanchot, this kind of uh, attunement to the occasion that um, uh, demands a particular touch, but that the thing that was um, explosive yesterday uh, is not, you can't count on it to be, to have the same force or the same incisiveness today. And it, so that that's one of the essays that um, seemed to me, um, um, I mean, it, it it spoke to me in a way at the moment when I, with everyone else, feels at a sort of quandary as to what refusal or what resistance or what a really strong rebellion would be. So it's not as though from the book we learn how to answer your question, but that the, that your question is really alive in these pages. And a lot in a um, sort of from moment to moment. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would second that final comment. I haven't myself done the work of tracing through and living with for and turning around in my mind and, and life and actions the exact phrasing of how it is that he, what he deals with, uh, um, how, he, how he phrases refusal, what it would mean that it's uh, at the moment when one doesn't speak. Um, so I, I can only point to that as something that I would like to do. I haven't done it yet. Um, what really, really comes to my mind, and this may absolutely have nothing to do with Vansha. Well, actually, let me say one more thing. Um, I, I like this notion of refusal because it's not resistance. Um, that is to say, it's not, it's, it's no. It's, it, it, it gives one a stance. It's something that someone can do at any moment without changing oneself hugely. Um, and that sounds like, well, maybe it's not really very much, but it also is a way in which one can do it as a way of being true to yourself. And it's not uh, very often one feels that being political means you've got to go out and do something. And um, going action is something that's very um, tricky, you don't know whether you can do it. You don't know whether you can, um, or you don't know also even if you do do what it is that you're trying to do, what the consequences will be. Um, actually, there was a lot of Maoist discourse around in 1970 when I was here. There were no one in my year was blowing up buildings, but someone who had graduated the year before I came to Swarthmore actually did. I very much disapprove of that sort of thing and even did then although you couldn't say it aloud um, that's an obvious sort of action and it was thought that well let's do these kinds of action and people will be stirred up and whatnot. Um, I think I think refusal is a much more dignified kind of thing and anyone could do it at any moment um, and this has of course nothing to do with Blanchot and I'm embarrassed to say it around all these people who, who do know something about Blanchot but what comes to my mind are things that I admire hugely as ethical acts as the form of refusal that the whistleblower on Abu Ghraib did he just said no, we don't do these sort of things and, and then commented you know, told that something had happened or I think it was at the Mylai massacre that someone simply pulled a gun and said we don't do these kinds of things 
I mean, those are more active than the kinds of refusal that Lanchot did, but that at some moment it's a kind of ethical mystery. And again, this is moving a little bit beyond Blanchot and with the kind of pathos, but it interests me a lot. At what moment does someone say, no, 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 I don't do that? And then figure out what is there in my surroundings that I can do. You know, for, for Blanchot, it was a certain kind of writing. It was the Declaration of the 121. It was uh, actually the letters about the Revue Internationale amused me a bit as a publisher because they immediately fall into kinds of things that authors you know, speaking different languages do when they get together. But, you know, at any moment, once you do that, oh, okay, what can I do? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe for the, the declaration of the 121, if you don't know what this is, it's really about the French soldiers' right to not go to the war and all intellectuals giving them some help uh, at a time when this could be compared with the situation in America with the Vietnam War, the exactly. official moment when 121 intellectuals, writers, signed this, they could have been jailed or uh, lost their civic rights for, for that. And Blanchot was the main organizer and writer of the text, which is really, indeed, a very, very important political moment. So what's interesting, if you see the list of the signatories, I think Zaki mentioned that you don't find Sartre. Or he's there, is, is he, there well, so he was in Brazil when it was being written, so he kind of signed it in absentia. But what's interesting uh, is the aftermath, the trial, uh, and the, 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 the judge, uh, the magistrate who was questioning Blanchot had to take a leave of absence uh, for moral fatigue, for reasons of moral <laughs> fatigue, because Blanchot refused to have his answers uh, summarized in a language other than his own. And uh, just uh, to that point, uh, to, to give an example of refusal, I read this short question answer. This is last from last one from interrogation with the judge. The question is, do you admit to being guilty of the crime of inciting insubordination and so on? And Blanchot says, not only do I not admit to being guilty, I am saying that it is you judges, you the government, who make yourselves guilty of an abusive and illicit use of words, treason and insubordination, when you apply them in the current situation, characterized by both the scandalous Algerian war and by the transformation through the fact of this war of the army into political power, situations where traditional civic obligations are no longer valid. So 
the red, for example, the figure that stands up and locks the tank in China, right? Yeah, That's yeah. a kind of refusal. And so I don't think he knew what was going to happen after that, but it provides this, this opening, right? Um, but so there's always a kind of taxonomy in Camus of, of rebellion um, where I think there's a story from Latromont where there's a character that doesn't want sort of God to enter into his head when he's sleeping, and so he takes kind of clothespins and props his eyelids open. And that's almost like a, I wonder if there's this kind of, um, call it metaphysical refusal in Blanchot as well as the political. And if, if you could say anything more about that and how it might be different from, say, like the situationist response mm. to, to some of that, uh, what I think had a lot to do with this kind of you know, slogans mm. that were present in Paris. Well, I mean, uh, I think it's important to uh, to remember that Blanchot is not ever uh, promoting a rebellious position or even an anarchist position. He's very keen to avoid these terms. I mean, he says uh, that's almost a movement that comes with too great a facility because then everything follows from it and that that keeps you from the responsibility of judgment. It's too systematic almost. Uh, uh, to to uh, answer your question somewhat obliquely, uh, if to take this figure of the Lothéamon character who, who props his eyes open in order not to sleep, I think Blanchot uh, writes about sleep and he says we never really do go to sleep because when we go to sleep there's the dream and the dream is a kind of wakefulness at the center of sleep. So the the dichotomy that is the point of departure for thinking about sleep and consciousness in terms of opposition are ones that don't hold for him. Um, uh, on the other hand, the 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 state of of becoming responsible, it, he talks about in terms of insomnia. That's the kind of state that he's interested in. When you can't go to sleep, you want to go to sleep, and everything you do keeps you from going to sleep. Uh, but this sort of impossible, uh, minimal consciousness uh, also opens you up uh, to uh, other concerns. Uh, Maybe about the interesting connection with the Camus. I think that's an interesting point of reference since Camus at that time was engaged in sort of polemical discussion with Sartre about, let's say, politics and also morality, values, and so on. What is striking in Blanchot is that he uses a very, very different vocabulary than Camus. It's not, in any sense, existentialist or the ideas of values and so on. It, it's so different and so close at the same time in the positioning, you might say, political. But the language is so, so different that there is something surprising and maybe it has to do with this uh, the fact that facing Algeria, uh, Camus was really from there and could not have such a strict position of the political imposition of a wrong 
order that Blanchot would see as absolutely evil, but he wouldn't say evil, something to be refused, rejected from the start. Whereas in Camus there is more of a negotiation, I feel, in terms of human values and so on. That's so, so different. Uh, that and uh, I think uh, perhaps it wasn't brought up explicitly because it's assumed to be common knowledge somehow there's this aura around Blanchot as well I think it's it's uh, it's not uh, unsurprising to find uh, resumes of his career as a writer that say he was a fascist before the war. And, and uh, this is a topic I think that has to be uh, dealt with in sort of detail. And the way I try to deal with it is to point out that before the war, uh, it's this conservative Catholic nonconformist milieu that he is in uh, that uh, is drawing him uh, towards uh, nationalist defense of France because he sees uh, internationalism at that point as a weak, abstract political notion that will make war inevitable. And uh, in that moment, there are texts, there are, this, this has been documented by people like Leslie Hill, but also Bidon, that there are texts where he... Uh, in his nationalistic uh, association will associate uh, international capitalism, uh, abstract uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, affiliations with the League of Nations with uh, the forces of Judaism as well. This, is, this can't be denied. This is there. But uh, I think it's... it's uh, uh, an ignorance on our part of the historical situation of a figure like Monchot in the 30s as an extremely talented young journalist who sees uh, week after week uh, the decisions that are being made uh, are, are the, precisely the ones that will lead the country into uh, a war um, 
that that he is uh, struggling uh, as a writer to come up with the the right words to make uh, his readers realize what is going on. And the language is inflammatory. He says, uh, we, uh, we ask for dissidents. There's another text that is entitled Terrorism as a Method of Public Salvation. Um, and, but this terror is precisely against the, the French terror of the 18th century. Um, and, and, and to come back to the first part of your comment, La Boétie, uh is mentioned in these texts, in a text on friendship, where Monchot is writing about uh, Montaigne, and he's writing about the gesture of Montaigne to cut the discourse out of his uh, own essays. So he wanted to in include them in the essays, but then he disseminates them, and this for Monchot, the, the sort of association of, of La Boétie with Montaigne is one uh, that provides the kind of model for friendship, where friendship is something uh, extremely difficult that's not based on proximity or uh, familiarity in any case. It's important to, to take this into account. First, these texts are, are interesting. There are many. Uh, they are not in that collection. The French collection didn't have them. I think it might be another book, perhaps, to uh, produce. But indeed, Leon Blum is the enemy. Like De Gaulle became the enemy later. So it's fundamentally an anti-parliamentarist uh, activist who is speaking. But as he, there is an interesting chronology of his own encounters and uh, what he always foregrounds was the encounter, my share of biography, the encounter with Emmanuel Levinas, Strasbourg, 1925, Husserl, Heidegger, an approach to Judaism. So I think that was very early. You might say Heidegger, we know that it's not necessarily untainted, but with Levinas, there was very early this discussion uh, about Judaism and a certain link to writing that I think somehow prevented Blanchot from you know, going to another extreme like Céline, or people like that. There's nothing one should be ashamed of in those writings if, you, if you've read them. I mean, it's not, not, nothing like anti-Semitism and so on. It's French nationalism trying to get rid of the Front Populaire for the reasons of the Moassians, of the right-wing groups, but no alliance like so many others with what they saw as the new strength of Germany and Hitler. No truce with Hitler. It's a complicated position, very, very marginal, but uh, that I think could not, could not be tenable for very, very long. But that's where he was, which I think shows why he could meet Bataille, who came from the extreme left, but also had a very untenable position at the same time. I mean, 39, 40, and so on. I could say something pragmatic to that. Uh, the question actually did come up when we accepted the book. Members of the editorial board said, well, shouldn't we demand that some of these right-wing writings be included? Um, it wasn't pragmatically possible because they haven't been collected. But in fact, uh, um, the question of 
What they were is covered in the book, both in Zakir's introduction. There's also a very nice foreword by Kevin Hart, which uh, talks about these, and, and particularly in light of the kinds of later perceptions of Daman. What was it to be right-wing in France at that time? It was not to be fascist. He said no to fascism as to other things. It was just as uh, um, Jean-Michel has outlined. Um, I remember there being a moment, um, and I don't know when L'Instant de Mamor was published, but I became aware of it in the mid-90s when Derrida wrote Demure. Mm. And L'Instant de Mamor is a... Van Schoen, I think, had been publicly... I don't know. I believe he'd been publicly very quiet about this side. And in fact, I once realized that one of the important uh, things about the publication of this in French was I believe that not it was not known for sure that Blanchot wrote a number of the texts in here until that had been established because this was happening anonymously. The thing with L'Instant de Mamour, it's um, an account, it's a récit, but of course you don't know whether it's fictional or not, in which he claims to have been um, almost killed by the Vlasov army at a uh, um, you know, family house. Now, of course, it's a little too literary because, of course, it's a scene straight out of Dostoevsky and it was the Vlasov army, so suddenly they turn out to be uh, Russians instead of Germans. Um, but that was taken by at least Derrida. It also was based on a letter that was made public at about that time as um, some indication that perhaps he actually was in the resistance, which I believe was a kind of touchstone for French intellectuals. I'm not sure what evidence outside that see there is for that. But this question has uh, you know, f- floated about. This book is, of course, a um, contribution to that. But again, um, to be right-wing was not then to be fascist. It was an attempt, according to these introductions, to try to respond to a perceived weakness in, of France against uh, growing power, internationalism, power in Germany and whatnot. If I can add one little point, what is then very extraordinary is that given this position before the war, it didn't become a gaullist because many people like him, right-wing nationalist, anti-popular front, found in de Gaulle the savior. I think that is remarkable in Blanchot, that he could resist that temptation uh, of a leader who repeatedly would assert the independence and strength of France against everything else, but not for Blanchot. No truth with that ideology. Actually, I might also add one more tiny thing. Um, the silence of Blanchot and the silence of Demand have, I think, when one looks back at them, slightly different colorings, um, at least to this date, and they're I don't think there's any sense that the silence of Blanchot was anything but certain kinds of refusal. There's a very odd text by Derrida called Le Parjour. It's in Without Alibi. Um, He actually had not intended to publish it in France, but it was published in the big um, Cahier de Lernes volume. And it is an account of a Romana Clef that I believe supposedly deals with Demand's bigamy. Demand. Demand, yeah. Um, And... uh, so that there might have been silences. And the kind of silence that happens in that novel, I, I just forgot. I just forgot that I had a wife. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that uh, 
Um, it, it was, and I think it was very painful and very strange to the people who were friends of Damon. I, I constantly have to remind people that I never even laid eyes on Damon, but I am of the generation of, uh, of his, many of his influential first students. Um, it, it was terribly shocking because he had such great moral force, but that the question right after his death, and this was why, why didn't he ever say? Um, so I, I think that, that you have to also look at, at the silence was also not something that was thematized. Well, of course, it was thematized by Demand, but in a quite different way from the, the kinds of silences in, of uh, Blanchot. Does that, does that say anything to you? Another question. So raised. I think, indeed, we have to be reminded of this strange disappearance of Blanchot that is a little like in the U.S., say, Pynchon. The reluctance to be seen in public or photographed was legendary. But you, you're right to, to say that this has very, very little to do with first the many, many links that he had with many people. One of my very good friends in Dijon, François Dominique, had a correspondence, I would say, twice a week with Blanchot. I don't think he ever met him. And that's also this idea that you don't have to meet, you can, he was often sick, you would be at home reading, writing, and you can have a, a perhaps more of an impact on, on your friends, people you would call friends, or Derrida, I think they met for a while uh, in 67, 68, and then that was it. And then they would keep exchanging letters. Uh, there's an enormous archive of correspondence that is still not publishable or will not be published, but uh, he, he was a, a letter writer of enormous magnitude, so which was a way of being aware of who was who, what was doing, who was doing what, without necessarily appearing in public after uh, 68, I think, or maybe you will contradict me, but I don't think he was much more visible and there's something a little pathological, you might say, but uh, it was a, a certain assertion of the power of writing, which is based on absence. And thank you for your attention, and thank you, Zakir, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Evan.